Welcome to Sophos Security Chat Chat, episode 84, for the 23rd day of February 2012. As you'll notice, regular listeners, I'm not Chester Wisniewski. I'm in fact Paul Ducklin. I'm visiting Vancouver this week. And so Chester and I have decided to reverse roles. And this week, I'm going to interview him because on some of our topics, he has some very considered opinions. That's true, Paul. We're uh, actually here in the Chet Chat studios uh, in downtown Vancouver. Which has been as sunny today as Sydney has for the last few weeks. A little chillier, though. But no matter about that, Chester, let's open straight up by talking about Google's cookie gate. Explain what that's all about. It's not just Google. I should be clear, there's several different marketing and advertising agencies who are using this technique, in essence, to bypass intended privacy protections built into Apple's Safari browser. By default, Safari is configured so that it can allow third parties to read cookies if they've already been placed on your computer, but it does not allow third parties to write cookies. So the idea would be when you go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com, there's a like button. And that like button from Facebook cannot place a cookie on your computer if you're running Safari because you don't already have a cookie from Facebook on your computer because you're not a Facebook user. So in other words, what you're saying is if there's a link inside a web page which causes content to come in from, say, facebook.com, if I started off by going to sophos.com, Facebook wouldn't be able to sneak a cookie in under false cover, as it were. Right, exactly. And, and yet, if you already had a relationship with Facebook, had been to Facebook, and Facebook had already placed a cookie on your computer, that piece of code would be allowed to read that cookie. It just can't originate or create a new cookie to track you by simply visiting a website of, of, of a third party. What Google was doing is they wanted to provide the opportunity for Google Plus users to be able to plus one, or kind of the equivalent of like, uh, their advertisements, because I know all of us are really anxious to share our favorite Google advertisements with our friends on Google+. But of course, in order to click plus one and share this fantastic Google ad content, Google has to be able to see if I'm logged into Google and which Google Plus user I might be and all this kind of thing, which created a problem for them being able to place a cookie because, of course, the, the advertisement is going to be like Google ad com or doubleclick.net or whatever it is, it won't be the name of the website that I'm on. It won't be nakedsecurity.sophos.com. So the idea was Google found a bug in Safari last summer, in June or July of last summer, that two um, Chromium engineers that work on the Google Chrome project flagged as a serious security bug that said uh, what Safari allowed was, or WebKit allows, which is part of uh, what Safari's built from, it's what Chromium's built from and many other browsers. It's the only browser engine that you're allowed to use, even if you build a third-party browser for the iPad, is it not? There, WebKit is the one true way for browsing. Yeah, it's my understanding that you're, you're right. You're pretty much using Safari or nothing on the iOS devices because uh, it is just WebKit. So anyway, well, Google found this flaw that uh, if you submit an empty form to the third-party site that has embedded content, then that site is allowed to place cookies. So someone at Google thought it was a good idea to exploit this vulnerability for their own advantage to enable these plus one ads. And by having uh, placed this form, this invisible form that really doesn't do anything other than subvert the privacy policy in Safari, it also accidentally allowed Google's ad networks to place tracking cookies, which they say it was not their intention whatsoever for that to happen. But once they subverted the policy, all bets were off and all their cookies started working. So how did this come to light? Because presumably Google didn't realize themselves and own up. This came out because somebody noticed. How did that happen? Well, there was a researcher at Stanford who was studying this and, and started looking at 
how many websites in the Alexa top 1000 or top 100, et cetera, were potentially using this. And what he discovered was that Google only serves up this bogus code to bypass the privacy policy when your user agent is Safari. Now, Chester, you described this as exploiting a vulnerability, which is the same sort of thing that cyber crooks do when they do a drive-by install, perhaps on a grander and more dangerous scale. But you didn't mince your words there. No, Why I, was I, that? because it's, it's absolutely intentional. And regardless of the explanations given by Google and the other parties involved, they consciously chose to exploit a bug, a security flaw in software in order to do something against the user and the computing device's wishes. Now, in some jurisdictions, I believe in some states in the US, that's actually unlawful, isn't it? Knowingly exploiting a vulnerability to get something to happen that you know is not supposed to happen. In other words, to to use a mistake to your advantage. I'm not a legal expert. I couldn't comment on that, but I, uh, I certainly feel like it should be that way. And, and that's what really boils down to in this. I just think we need to get to a point where people are what their word says. Like they, they need to just come forward and say, this is exactly what we're doing. You know, Google products are free. Google search is free. Gmail's free, et cetera, et cetera. And in turn for that, here's what we're going to do. And just be straight up about it. Do you really accept that? Would you say that services like Google, Facebook, Hotmail, et cetera, really are free or that it's simply that you don't have to pay in cash? You're basically paying, if you like, in kind by generating the clicks and by being the person that delivers the revenue to these companies. Right. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. They just need to be more upfront about exactly what is the trade that you're entering into. Now, Chester, you mentioned earlier that the issue with third-party cookies is that if you've gone to facebook.com or google.com or gmail.com and logged in, that site would already have set a cookie. And in future, embedded references to those domains in a third-party domain would be able to read those cookies once they'd been set. Once you've logged into Facebook or Gmail or one of these services where you're encouraged to stay logged in because it's so convenient, you're almost bypassing that third-party policy yourself, aren't you? Yeah. So would you advise our listeners that they really do need to log out of Facebook, Gmail, Hotmail when they're not using it, despite the inconvenience? Well, I guess it depends on your, your personal comfort level with being tracked. Some people like that. They don't mind that. If you're okay with it, that's great. Chester, you just talked about the idea of people who aren't that concerned about privacy or about being tracked where they go on the internet. I think that leads nicely to the second thing that we said we wanted to talk about. And this is what I consider proof positive that privacy breaches of your personally identifiable information can do you harm, even if you couldn't have controlled it. And the incident I'm talking about relates to the Stratfor break-in that happened a couple of months ago. My understanding is that people whose email addresses were stolen in that breach, which is then published by Anonymous, whoever he, she, or it may be, that those addresses are now being used by cyber crooks to try and do drive-by installs or to try and infect you with malware. Is that correct? Yeah, I read a few stories this week of people that had um, kind of proof positive that it was their Strat4 emails being abused. And Is that because it was an email address that they'd only given to Strat4? Yeah, exactly. So it sounds as though privacy really matters whether you think yourself that it matters to you. In other words, the best defense is not to let something out because that's really the only way that you can guarantee that it won't later be abused. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite annoying to see. We, we were tracking malicious PDF files. In essence, somebody grabbed that list of an email addresses that was dumped onto Pastebin and was sending uh, booby-trapped PDF files that contained malware to former Strat4 
subscribers. I don't know if they're all still Strat4 subscribers or not. So there's no evidence that this was the same guys who did the ori original breaking and the thievery from Strat4? Yeah, well, that's the thing. We don't really know. Well, one, we don't know who did it. And then even if we knew who did it, it doesn't matter because the information was made public. Anybody can exploit all those people that were involved. And this is true with most of these attacks by Anonymous. I mean, you and I are quite harsh in our opinions toward them quite often here on the podcast and in some of our articles on Naked Security. And we get a lot of guff from our readers in the comments going, somebody's got to stand up for the little man and, you know, all this kind of stuff defending Anonymous. But this seems to be a great example where two wrongs don't make a right. Absolutely, exactly. And, and it just shows that, the ch that this childish, ridiculous behavior of, of publishing all this information on innocent people to supposedly get at the corporate man all it's doing is hurting lots and lots of innocent people. And I hope that none of these Strat4 people uh, opened any of these attachments. But you can be sure with you know, hundreds of thousands of people that are receiving booby-trapped PDFs, I'm sure some of those folks have not found the time to patch their Adobe Acrobat Reader or, you know, and potentially was curious about the contents and decided to open it up. And the, the leaked list was very large, wasn't it? Somewhere around 850,000, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, I think it was 850K. Yeah, it was a very large list. Okay, so... Something more about privacy, where let's go on to talk about this, because I know you, you, you find this very interesting. And the House Intelligence Committee, which is a cross-bench committee in, in the U.S. federal legislature, they've actually put out very simple but unambiguous guidelines for their own members traveling overseas, haven't they, about what you should do with the data on your laptop. Yeah, this started with the fact that uh, in Russia and China in particular, they're now prohibiting foreigners from entering the country with encrypted devices. So you're not allowed to bring an encrypted hard drive or an encrypted USB stick or an encrypted laptop. Now, how well they, they police that or monitor that at the border seems questionable. It'd be hard to know. But apparently it is policy there that you're not allowed to bring in encrypted stuff. And of course, when you're on networks in foreign countries or even at home, I mean, that's the thing I guess we were, we were talking a little bit about earlier. If you're not running the network itself, <clears throat> you can't really vouch for the integrity of it, whether it's Starbucks or whether it's the Great Firewall of China. It doesn't really matter where you're at. If you don't control the network, you could be re being redirected to sites that could be trying to drive by, install malware, key loggers, who knows what kind of stuff. So their policy uh, for the House Intelligence Committee now is that they're only allowed to take, quote, clean laptops, meaning they've been scrounged of all possible information that might be sensitive, and I assume if they're smart, they're probably just putting a fresh brand spanking new hard drive in those machines that has never had any sensitive information written to it. They're not allowed to connect back to government networks when they're traveling. Just because of the, the great frequency with which malware was being placed onto these machines subversively, uh, or the opportunity for those machines to be physically apprehended at the border and perhaps used for, uh, for intelligence purposes. Now, Chester, is this, is this sort of stuff only really of importance to people in the intelligence community or in law enforcement? Or is that actually something that individuals and businesses large and small ought to have an opinion on themselves? I think it's, uh, it's everyone, period. And we know it's everyone. I mean, in our business, unfortunately, we often don't get to speak about some of the unfortunate things that happen about our, you know, to our customers. We don't want to name them because we want them to remain our customers and we want to work with them to help them better protect their information. But I can't think of a single industry or a business size that I would say, oh, well, these guys are safe. Like we've seen every size customer from, you know, three guys that are consultants all the way on up to this, you know, multi-million dollar top of the Fortune 500 size companies. And every single one of them has had data stolen from them that arguably was stolen for the purposes of espionage. We've seen lawyers and accountants and manufacturers and on and on and on. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. This stuff is happening and it's happening for real. And nobody's too small or unimportant 
to be thieved. That reminds me of something that uh, our colleague Graham wrote about on Naked Security, which is a, a chap who hacked into Facebook in the UK, was prosecuted in the UK and convicted and sent to prison for eight months. And the judge in that case, if you remember, said, you hacked into a huge global organ- important organisation. It wasn't just some small, unimportant local business. And that's just the wrong way of looking at it, isn't it? An, an injury to one really is an injury to all in this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, was, I saw that as well, and I was quite annoyed with the wording that the judge chose because I'm thinking, oh, so if it's Facebook, it's a problem. Meanwhile, if you want to practice your hacking skills, go hack into the local restaurant's credit card database because they don't matter because they're not Facebook. There's valuable information everywhere, and if it's, truly, if it's valuable to your business and your business can't operate without it, you need to treat it the same way as you would treat any other valuable item in your business, like, say, your inventory or your employees, and your data is part of that enterprise. Chester, we've, been, we've obviously been talking about encryption on laptops. You spoke about learning more about security in the future, so to wrap up, and thinking about learning new stuff. Tell us what's going to be happening next week. Well, if I were you, I would go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com and click the banner on the right-hand side that says RSA. Get in free, and I might click on that to get myself a free ticket and come out to sunny San Francisco, California. On uh, Tuesday, I believe it's Tuesday through Thursday, is the main exposition hall and conference. Come by booth 1817 and pick up a snazzy white and blue Sophos crypto puzzle t-shirt uh, what, what is the name of the uh, the puzzle uh, uh, the, the theme of the conference this year it is the great cipher is mightier than the sword it's a bit of a mouthful isn't it it's yeah, very yeah catchy. That's... <laughs> let's hope the cipher is mightier than the sword looking back on what you were just talking about earlier the idea that there are some governments that have said hey when you visit us you're not allowed to use encryption ciphers or you're not allowed to have encrypted laptops it suggests that they feel that maybe the cipher is mightier than the sword Exactly. No, I mean, clearly, if these governments are not allowing you to use this technology, it's a good sign that it's pretty effective. So RSA, yeah, please join us. Paul and I will both be there with a lot of our colleagues, other folks who have been on the chat chat, folks you guys may have uh, interacted with if you've purchased our products in the past. Some of our sales engineers are going to be out. We're going to have a whole big crew there. Our CEO is going to be there. Our CTO is going to be there. Chester, I was just going to mention that I heard on the grapevine that one of the people, one of the Sophos people who will be in attendance on the booth may have prepared a special conference song which will be performed live in concert. Do you think there's any truth to that rumor? I've heard the same rumor. Uh, I don't know whether we will have the uh, required amount of talent. Considering all the other booths have people that they pay to be at their booths uh, from local talent agencies, if we need, maybe we can borrow one of their uh, talented, uh, young, attractive folks to come over and, and sing for us. Do they know a lot about cryptography, web security, malware, reversing, penetration testing, exploits, vulnerabilities, and the like? Well, I can't imagine that you would hire staff for RSA that wasn't well-versed in these technologies. And riding unicycles, it seems. And, yes, swallowing flaming things. And... Well, Chester's right. If you're going to be in the San Francisco area next week, we love you to come and see us at RSA. And as Chester mentioned, you can get a free expo pass from nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And everybody, thanks for listening. And until next time, stay secure. Beep.